0: So honored to introduce our special guest this morning, Mickey Scott Bay Jones. I want to read to you a little bit of her bio. She is a womanist contemplative activist. She is a healer, a nonviolent direct action organizer and consultant who facilitates conferences, workshops, pilgrimage retreats and online conversations. She writes and speaks on a variety of topics including healing justice, communal self-care, contemplative activism, intersectionality and theology from the margins. Mickey has a master's in intercultural studies and is an associate fellow of racial justice with Evangelicals for Social Action. She's also a collaborator with Faith Matters Network and Children's Defense Fund. Um, she was named one of the Black Christian Leaders Changing the World by Huffington Post. We are so honored that she's here today. She is also one of our dear friends. Can you please make welcome Mickey Scabe Jones?
1: good. You're already standing up. So when I, may, when I piss you all off, then we've already, we've already had the standing ovation. This is good. All right. Just kidding. This is going to be a lovely little conversation. Um, so I heard that um, last week Anna preached a powerful word about sexism and genderism and that she wore a shirt that said, I met God and she's black. So here I am. <laughs> They just decided to go straight to the source uh, for the next talk. Just, just kidding. Like Beyonce, I, I, like, I know I'm not God. It's fine. I just talk about God being a black woman. Um, but I do want to thank Melissa and Stan, um, Anna and Ron, and um, so many of you that are here that I know personally, um, my, my folks in the audience um, that I've just come to know over the years. See, I am also in a similar journey. Um, I also um, had my own kind of little conversion experience as a 14-year-old in a Tennessee small Southern Baptist, mostly white congregation in Knoxville, Tennessee, and was a conservative Christian for a very long time. And when I say conservative, I mean super conservative. Um, And so then, like many of you, I fell down the um, you know, slippery slope of progressive Christianity, and <laughs> here we are today. Um, so, uh, you know, but it has, the thing about it, though, is that has, it has been um, the most rich expression of spirituality and faith, um, yet the least certain in this 25-plus-year journey that I've had of following this ragtag, Um, Palestinian makeshift rabbi named Jesus so I am right here with y'all figuring it out too Um, and I could spend all the whole time talking about my faith journey and maybe I can come back and do that another time secret I talk about things other than race Um, I know we can do that Um, it's okay Um, you guys can laugh it's fine Um, but here today I'm here to talk about blind spots but, but, but first, before we get into that, as a contemplative activist, um, I want to invite all of you to take a moment to breathe with me. I love so much that Stan invited us to breathe as part of our prayer, and that is part of my, um, my spiritual practice, um, is a lot of breathing, uh, a lot of praying with my body. Um, and so... Unless for some reason you have been living under a rock for the last three years, you've managed to avoid all television, radio, social media, and basically talking to other human beings, you are aware that we are in a moment of heightened awareness around issues of ethnicity and race um, and identity and how those issues interact with social systems and injustices. And for many white folks, yes, I'm going to say things like white people and black people and people of color. Um, that just saying that out loud, identifying someone's race out loud, um, can be anxiety producing for those of us who have ta- who've been taught to believe that the best way to get to move forward in this racial conversation is to stop talking about it. And for white folks, this is an uncomfortable conversation, and frankly, one that many are tired of having. And um, for many of my people of color, where's my, where are my sprinkles at, we got a few, yeah, <laughs> girl, and that. <laughs> That hair, honey, I just have to give you a minute. Um, Woo! Like, I saw you from over here, and I was like, oh, jealousy. Um, Woo! Um, but I see, I see my sprinkles. I got you. I got you. Uh, we actually, a few of us started a hashtag a few days ago, or a few weeks ago on Twitter, um, hashtag where my unicorn's at. Because you know, we go to the conferences, and we're like, I see one. I see one. I see one. Um, <laughs> So, you, you scope the room um, when you get in there. But this can, for us too, this can be an uncomfortable conversation. Um, so, that's why it's always funny when people are like, You're pulling the race card. I'm like, No, we don't want to talk about it either. <laughs> like, it's don't, like, we, there, if, if that was the card, we'd be like hiding that card and sitting on it. Um, so, you know, but there are different reasons, right, that we're all kind of in this place where, we're, where it's a difficult conversation to have. So, if we can take a moment right now together to just have a little contemplative moment to ground us as we move forward together. So, right now, notice your breathing, just where you're at. Um, you don't have to change it yet, just see where your breathing is at, whether it's shallow or deep, relaxed or tense, and just give thanks for your breath. The breath of the creator is flowing through and into your body right now and flowing out and flowing from you to your neighbor. Now raise your shoulders as you breathe in again and as you breathe out, relax your shoulders and let all those fears and worries leave with that breath. One more time, breathe in, raising your shoulders and breathe out. Relaxing your shoulders, rolling them back, settling into your seat, Hmm. settling into your body. Good. Now that you're all relaxed and attentive, it's story time. A long time ago, there was a teenage girl, and her name was Mickey. This brilliant and beautiful little girl, I mean, it's my story, so I can tell how I want. turned 16 and learned to drive. She learned about parking and speed limits and roadsides and even got a license. But she did not start out as the best driver in the whole world. She made mistakes. So one day this beautiful and brilliant Mickey was driving on the interstate between home and school and an ambulance came up behind her. And there were lights and sirens blazing and she frantically began to check her mirrors her blind spots in order to do the right thing okay now this is where I switched to first person because I just got to tell you what it was like for me in that moment this is the first time I actually remember hearing a siren behind me I don't know if everyone remembers that first moment but I remember it and I had the exact response that it's supposed to generate I had alarm attention all I knew is that I had to get out of the way and get out of the way quick but on a multi-lane highway, I honestly just thought that meant get to whatever side you could get to fastest. But that's not what it means. <laughs> so I pulled to the left against the highway barrier, and I kid you not, the ambulance driver slowed down, and in what you could call a, like angry, frustrated voice, said to me, you pulled over to the wrong side, and sped off. I was mortified. First, that he would take the time to yell at me when somebody's dying in the back of his ambulance in my head, like, somebody's dying back there and you're yelling at me, oh, I don't understand. And then two, because who likes to get yelled at? I, my feelings were hurt. So at that point, as a fairly um, upset 16-year-old girl, I could have taken the route that my grandma Scott Bay took, um, and she never drove in her adult life, but I currently did not have a husband or children to drive me around. Um, so, and Knoxville didn't have the greatest bus system in the world, so I wouldn't exactly have been able to get where I needed to go, um, So, but that was an option. But instead, what I did is continued to drive, and I became a better driver by a few things. One taking the correction that I had been given, at least looking into that correction, seeing if that was the truth, um, and I learned to pull to the right, because that was what I was supposed to do. And two, by just continuing something. by Re- reviewing what I knew, reviewing my driver's ed ma- manual, and gaining more experience. So I think that navigating race can actually be and certainly feel a lot like navigating that highway with an ambulance loud and bright behind us, making us feel like we have to do something but not quite sure of what to do, but yet we feel like it's too important to mess it up, especially for white folks. you know. You know that something is wrong, but you didn't know that something was wrong, and now you really know it because there are all these alarms going off, and that is signaling that something's wrong. Now, my people of color here, bear with me, because most of what I have to say today is going to address our white siblings in the house of God this morning. But I'm going to come back around to you, to us, um, and it may be good for you to overhear, even though the majority of what I'm going to be saying may feel like it resonates more with the white folks in the room, but it's good for everybody. So, when it comes to blind spots, I think if we aren't careful or just inexperienced as drivers, we can swerve and, and, and yank the wheel um, and even drift over into different lanes as we try to check those blind spots. And that makes us bad drivers. And nobody wants to be a bad driver. No one wants to be bad at navigating this social construct that we call race. And for sure, no one wants to be called a racist. It's like literally one of the worst things you can be called these days, is to be called a racist. But the fact is, we live in a white supremacist, capitalist, heteropatriarchal society. I know, Google, just Google bell hooks, and that whole phrase will be at your fingertips. Um, (laughs) And especially in the West, and especially in the US, we are conditioned by culture and have life, we have had these life lessons that have both been taught specifically and kind of caught. um, And we interact with various systems that are meant to keep particular norms of behavior and power in place. Many people go their entire lives, or at least much of their lives, unaware of these conditionings, lessons, and systems because they are woven into our schools, our communities, our theologies, our professions. In fact, they are woven into our entire lives. Now, those who are the most marginalized, poor, uneducated, minorities, those who have suffered from colonization um, and, and otherwise been discriminated against, those under the, under the most under the weight of oppression are often more aware of these things because we have learned how to negotiate them. W.E.B. Du Bois called it double consciousness. So just know that as you, as a white person, or someone with more privilege and power start to see these injustices, the system works in such a way that these things are invisible to you. Always there, but existing in a type of perpetual blind spot, just out of the reach of your vision. So what do we need to do to make the blind spot of race visible so that we can not only see it, but also act in a way that adds more of what I think is God's ultimate dream for the world? More shalom in the world. I think we need to do three things. They are, we need to check our mirrors, two, do a double check, and three, we gotta move. So the first is checking our mirrors. Mirrors show us what we can't see. Galatians 3, 25 through 28, which you guys are probably all familiar with, says, but now that faith has come, we are no longer subject to a disciplinarian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all all children of God through faith. As many of you as were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. There is no longer Jew or Greek, there is no longer slave or free. There is no longer male and female, for all of you are one in Christ Jesus. Now, this verse has been interpreted in approximately 358 billion ways, um, <laughs> especially around race and ethnicity, um, and in some and, and typically though into some kind of um, ideal where we are all colorless, non-distinguishable like blobs for Jesus. Um, <laughs> <laughs> we can just forget about all those things. But here's what I want to suggest. According to this verse and others, we are all part of the body of Christ. We're all one in Christ. We are not however the same body part. Just like I can only see parts of myself like if I look at myself or if I even if I look at a, in a mirror straight ahead, uh you need me uh, or I need mirrors to see the other parts of my body. Right? Um, and you need me and I need you to see the parts of God's family that I can't just see by looking at myself and in fact you need maybe two one or two mirrors to really see all of yourself or even three and that's just looking at the outside of the body we're not even talking about right devices now that can look inside of our body to see something that's wrong inside so and you know if you've ever been in a dressing room where you're trying something on and, you know, you see the front of you, but then when you get the mirror that shows you the back of you, you're like, "Uh oh, hello, right? You, like, get to see more of yourself, and you see how great you look. You see all the different angles. And seeing your body from different angles can make clear some of those things that you just couldn't see before. Now, we've hyper-spiritualized this idea by relating it to all of our, uh, relating it all to spiritual gifts, But the gifts you bring to the body are also wrapped up in who you are. They are wrapped up in your history, your personality, your culture, your sexuality, your family, your lived experience of the body, which includes your skin and your gender. All of these things bring beauty to the body of Christ and fullness to creation. When we embrace and live into the unity and diversity that comes from learning about, listening to, living with, and yes, loving someone who is different from yourself, you will begin to see the different angles by which we live, move, and breathe in the world. And this is important, especially for those who carry the most amount of privilege or who are closer to the center of power, which in the US has historically been white men. So a quick vocabulary check. Sometimes we get into talking about race and we use words like white privilege or white supremacy, which can make people uncomfortable, especially people who, um, who, white people, when we start to use those words and who identify with the white part before the privilege or the supremacy. And that discomfort that some of you may be feeling right now is another vocabulary word, which we called white fragility. (laughs) The discomfort that white people feel when talking about race is due to the instability of actual whiteness. It's kind of like the genie in Aladdin. Do you guys remember Aladdin? It was like one of my favorite movies growing up. Phenomenal cosmic powers! Bitty bitty living space! You remember that? It's like my favorite part of the whole movie. In other words, whiteness is this powerful, unseen force of cultural and political control, but it is confined in a box of ideology, accepted ethnic groups, and frankly, in the U.S., the legal definition of who is a white person. Um, There's a book called The History of White People. Um, The author's name is Painter. um, And she literally goes through how different people have become white, right? Like the people we consider white in America today have not always been white. Um, so that's fascinating, a fascinating read if you want to read more about that. So one way to understand white supremacy is the establishment of whiteness as the norm and the enforcement of that norm in all the ways necessary from cultural expectations like grammar and word choice and beauty to um, the exclusion of non-white people in housing like what we see in redlining. The norm is the words and syntax white people use. The norm is how white people look. The norms that are held in place as are, are an invisible standard. And then they are seen as well, the standard. But, and one way you can even see this is to think about who is considered American, right? We have Asian Americans, Mexican Americans, African Americans, and what are white people? Americans. <laughs> For example, in seminary I was talking to a fellow student, a young white man from the Pacific Northwest, who said to me, I wish I was black or Hispanic or something because I'm just white and I don't have a culture. And I just kind of looked at him, his sweet little innocent face, <laughs> and I was like, you have everything else. You're like, you are literally, white dudes, you get everything, now you're coming from a culture. Um, He sat down (laughs) after that, Um, but really there is this um, kind of, it is the baseline, the norm, it is just what is. No culture, just normal. Whiteness is seen as a nothingness. No theology, just Christianity. No values, just how humans should act. Ironically though, when ethnic groups become white, they lose their culture. Irish become white, Scottish become white, so whoever your people were and wherever you came from, white people, your whiteness was negotiated away from you for the larger system of privileges that come with that racial label. And that is something that white supremacy stole from you. And that's one of the ways white supremacy harms us all. So back to blind spots. Those who experience marginalization are often used to checking our blind spots. And as a congregation um, who has been able to look into the eyes of LGBTQ folks, and be open to to a different experience of the world and church, to seeing it as one full of pain, discrimination, um, fear, um, and othering, and then doing something. You guys then did something with that understanding you may be uniquely situated to look into the mirror of those marginalized by skin color and see the world through their eyes as well. However, this has always been difficult to do. In 1946, it's 1946, seven out of ten white people, which surely included a nation full of white Christians, believed that black folks were being treated fairly. Understand that that is in the midst of lynching, sharecropping, Jim Crow segregation, free reign of the KKK, and pretty much zero voting rights for black folks and most people of color. And arguably, it should have been pretty easy to see that discrimination. Like to even just say, okay, like we know it's there, but we just like the way society is. But no, it wasn't seen as discrimination. But now we would all look at that as like indisputable fact. Fast forward to 2016 and despite the videos that flood our timelines, live streams from protest, people on Twitter, a more diverse cultural education at our fingertips, the gap still persists. About 85% of black um, Americans believe that non-white folks are treated unfairly by the criminal justice system. About 52 to 64%, depending on whether or not there's a college education, of white folks share that same view. So, um, sorry, my notes are off a little bit here. Um, So we still have that issue of disparity. So sometimes, even when when we read the Bible, Hold on, sorry guys. My notes got off. (sighs) One second. Okay, sorry. So in The Trouble I've Seen, Changing the Way the Church Views Racism by Dr. Drew Hart, which is a book I would highly recommend, he suggests that the cure for dominant culture blinders or blind spots is discipleship, a process of emptying of self, of relinquishing one argument of that never happens to me, um, and instead moving toward a deep solidarity of acknowledging, respecting, and believing both in the data and the narrative of the oppressed and the marginalized. There are over 2,000 scriptures that have to do with the poor and the marginalized and the oppressed, which to me might be a sign that we can actually learn discipleship lessons from those people living in those situations. So if by checking those mirrors, you can check to see other parts of the body, the body of Christ, the double check process is gathering and checking other spots of reflection It is in the process of reading, gathering knowledge and reflection that, frankly, evangelicals and post-evangelicals, progressives, are pretty good at. We're really good at reading lots of articles and blogs, lots of blogs, (laughs) and Brian McLaren books, and sometimes we even still read the Bible, and all of that's important. All of that reading, especially on issues of race, is really important. But my question is, are you only seeking out people of color on issues of race? Well, I want you to read Drew's book that I mentioned earlier and many other brilliant people of color re- writing about race and injustice and how these things intersect. It is a type of ghettoization to only look to people of color as experts on race. Surprisingly, we like write about a whole bunch of things like education and parenting and relationships and cooking and love and all kinds of things. So, and and memoirs, right? So like, think about when was the last time you read or listened to, or went to a conference at, or listened to a speaker that was a person of color that wasn't speaking on the issue of race. Because people of color, and especially black people, are often consumed as an educational or cultural product. But we are not respected as producers and originators of ideas. We are appreciated as the booty-shaking Beyonce, which I also appreciate, but despised as the activist-taking-a-knee Colin Kaepernick. The United States of America has long loved the cultural, commercial production of blackness and denied the intellectual and social contributions of those same people. So you can stay in one line, in lane for a long time and never move while you're, while you're driving. But at some point, for a multitude of reasons, it may make sense to switch lanes. And once you put your blinker on, the blind spots, and double-check, there comes a time when you have to move. I think the technical term we're looking for is you gotta poop or get off the pot. (laughs) At some point. I would be surprised if someone in this room had not heard the saying, faith without works is dead, right? It's one of those things that's actually in the Bible that can be helpful. And checking your blind spots without moving doesn't actually help you make a change. Our Christian brother and and modern prophetic voice, Cornel West says, justice is what love looks like in public. And tenderness is what love looks like in private. And deep democratic revolution is what justice looks like in practice. And here's what I think. I think shalom and peace, a peace and mutuality that is lived in equity, where each person has what they need has the lived experience of wholeness, community, and liberation, that is love in practice. That is a participatory love, a revolutionary love, and that is one that we are invited by the move of the Spirit and by each other to participate in. So I've invited my friend Margaret here today. We're going to get her on the screen so you can see her. And as you came in, Um, and Margaret's going to share a little bit about this revolutionary love and what I'm talking about, especially how to join for folks that are kind of raced as white. Um, and as we're getting Margaret set out, set up, you guys probably got an index card. If you didn't, I don't know if there's still people with index cards, um, when you came in. And so probably already you're starting to have some feelings in your body, some reflections in your mind and some questions come up in your spirit. And if so, you can take some time to write that on the card. Even if it's just a word or two, um, it's good to start, start letting that come out. Um, and so I invite you to use that card, or if you have paper or whatever you have, you can start writing down some of those thoughts and questions. Not that you have to say them out loud in this group today, they may be things you, you take to your meal groups, things you discuss later over lunch with your friends, with your family, but that's why we gave you this little handy card so you would have something to write on So, do we have, we have Margaret? Hey, it's Margaret. That's my friend, Margaret. Thanks for joining us, Margaret. Of course. Um, Can you hear me? Yes, we can hear you. And you can't see them, but it's just like a few hundred friends. It's cool. No big deal. Um, And we're just having a little tiny discussion over a no-stress topic race. It's totally cool. Um, So, wave, because they can see you now. Yay! Um, so, everybody, this is Margaret Ernst. Yay! Say hi, Margaret. Okay. I don't know if you can hear them through <laughs> hi my friend. mic. Yay! Um, and Margaret is a white person who knows what it's like to have blind spots. So, she's here to invite you into, um, into that learning process with her. Um, so, Margaret, can you help us a little bit with that yes. blind spot? Go ahead. Yeah. Go ahead. Uh, so hey everybody, this is a
2: new experience for me because I can't see you at all, but this is where I'm um, I'm experiencing blind faith uh, on a whole other level and just hoping that you can see and hear me and that you'll hear um, not just my words, but what is behind those words. <clears throat> uh, I, I am based in Nashville, so I, I just happened to be out of town today, um, so I'm really glad that we can speak this way. And I am a member of SURGE, which stands for Showing Up for Racial Justice Nashville. Um, SURGE is a national network of white folks who are intentionally organizing other white people uh, for racial justice. And just a little bit of the background of SURGE before uh, I go into more um, of what I wanna share with you is that it was founded in 2008. Uh, It was founded intentionally picking up the call from Uh, movements led by folks of color, uh, the call for white people to focus on our own communities and bringing our own communities to support anti-racism work. And this is a call which Black organizers uh, since forever, basically for generations, have been asking white people to do, but hadn't necessarily been picked up um, on a a mass scale. So Surge is really trying to to respond to that call now and has been growing and growing in the past few years uh, as the movement for Black Lives has, has grown as well. We have a chapter in Nashville, and I am uh, intentionally focusing on working with faith communities in that in that chapter. Uh, So I want to pick up this theme of blind spots that Mickey has already emphasized and that you all have um, been open to because of this series. And as a white person speaking to white people who are in the room, uh, I think that what I want to emphasize is that we have to get used to and practice and get better and better and better at driving and moving with our blind spots that are there. Uh, and I know Mickey has talked about this so much, but um, so just because we have blind spots and we always will, they will never totally 100% go away, doesn't mean we have to pull off the road. It you know, means we have to keep on driving and moving. And so in that spirit, I want to share with you some principles to think about when beginning to move into action as a predominantly white faith community Uh, wanting to do the work of racial justice Uh, and that because we need you we need you for this work and you don't have to be fully perfect in order to contribute Um, you don't even have to be a fully racially integrated church in order to contribute Uh, and as white people we particularly need to get past the idea that diversity in itself is the goal. Dismantling white supremacy is the goal And that even as our churches, as they are, right, even if they're predominantly white, we can work towards that goal. and We can be on the front lines and we should be. And that's good news for white folks, too. So I have six main points. Um, And the first is is the concept of mutual interest. And so some of you may have heard this quote. Uh, It's from an Aboriginal activist in Queensland, in Australia from the 1970s, and she said, If you've come to help me then you're wasting your time. If you've come because your liberation is wrapped up with mine then let's work together." And so what does this really mean in concrete ways for us as white people in the struggles for racial justice? If you've come because your liberation is wrapped up with mine then let's work together. So mutual interest is the idea that uh, as white people living in a system defined by racism and by, by white privilege, white supremacy, uh, we, are, we undoubtedly receive countless benefits from that system. Um, it means being able to access jobs that folks of color can't access. It means being able to access loans, houses, um, you know, being given the benefit of the doubt and not being assumed to be a criminal in our daily lives. And at the same time, we are impacted and hurt by systemic racism in different ways than people of color. So this is not to say we're hurt in the same ways by any means, Um, And so, but to name mutual interest for white people is not, the intention is not to center whiteness or center white people, because folks of color always have to be centered in the work, but it's to recognize the stake that we have uh, in racial justice so that we're not only doing our work against racism, out of guilt over our privilege or on behalf of others but because we recognize that we have um we have an interest ourselves and that we need to work at a deep solidarity and just to, some examples of of this actually i want to name also that i think we can find a a deep root for this concept of mutual interest in scripture um in first corinthians when paul says is talking about the body and body of christ and how if one Part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. And that like sounds all well and good, right? So we can we can be like, oh yeah, you know, just, we can quote King all the time, saying injustice here is injustice, threat to justice anywhere is a threat to just injustice everywhere. And that becomes a sort of thing that we say, right? But we don't often talk about what that, um, how specifically as white people. Our part of the body, of the human body, suffers when black and brown people suffer because of racism. And it's imperative that we begin to name some of those ways to motivate our families and communities to get into this work. So uh, one of the main ways is is I would call cultural deformation. deaf deformation. So we're deformed by racism and white supremacy culturally. Uh, And one way to think about this is that that we, as white people living in our society, are living and breathing a deaf culture. And this means that the places that we came from and our particular cultural and family histories have gotten collapsed into a false construction called whiteness. And whiteness is not a real thing, right? It was an identity constructed in order to exploit the labor and bodies of black and brown people. In order to exploit the labor and bodies of black and brown people. So the theologian Kelly Brown Douglas calls this stand your ground culture. Uh, and that the idea of whiteness itself um, is to defend itself against perceived threats, right? So we can think about this. This is not actually a culture, right? It's a culture defined by what it's not and it's defined by violence. And as people who come into the society and the bodies that we that we come into this, um, as people who come into this culture with the bodies that we have, we become foot soldiers of this death culture and we become culturally suffocated by it. Uh, So we also are spiritually deformed by racism Uh, and this is by this I mean that we become uh, So whiteness the construction of whiteness and the ways that we become trained to protect it again at all costs um, Really becomes a heresy that we follow. So I I say that very seriously and this is uh, Something you can look into more um, from a number of theologians. One of them is uh, James Cameron, sorry, yeah James Cameron Carter um, who wrote wrote a book called Race A Theological Account, but he talks about whiteness as a heresy, a Christian heresy, uh, where whiteness basically replaces God and order of the world, Um, and we get our identity from that, get our identity from being white, uh, instead of getting our identity from God or from Christ, and in reciprocal relationships with other humans. So that's just one of the ways that we're spiritually deformed by whiteness, and you might you probably have a number of ways you can think about yourself, how that shows up for you personally. And then we're also deformed economically. And what I mean by this is that since the earliest settlement of this country by Europeans, a racism has been a strategic tool of elites, so people at the top uh, to gain enormous profit. And this is not only by exploiting black and brown labor and indigenous land, but by turning quote unquote white folks right into um, we're white folks who are in the working majority, so that means you and me, anybody who works for a living, um, against black and brown people. So it makes us focus our anger there and feel like all the problems our countries, um, or in our, in our communities are coming for black and brown folks instead of directing our attention on bigger problems or on the people who are exploiting us. So this is still very true today and it's been used and it's evolved throughout our culture and society. Um, in, in every generation, and it keeps on looking different, but it's been true uh, since the earliest settlement. And so we end up hurting ourselves uh, by having internalized racism. Um, and we end up having less, right? So we end up living in this um, whole kind of society defined by scarcity. So the good news, that's all, that's all a lot of bad news. <laughs> and, and I don't want to leave you with that. Um, that's a lot of bad news, right? And we need to, be, we need to start naming those ways and really recognizing the gravity of it um, and learning as much as we can and, and start talking about this with our friends and family who are also white. Uh, the good news is that the other on the other side right, of deformation, whether it's spiritual deformation or cultural deformation or economic exploitation, on the other side of that is, is liberation and freedom. Right? So there's cultural liberation and wholeness spiritual liberation and wholeness and economic liberation and wholeness. And Adrienne Ray Brown, who's a science fiction writer, she kind of explains this idea of mutual interest too, um, by saying what you imprison, imprisons you. Mm. So we can flip that around and also say when we support folks getting free who we have imprisoned, then we also get free ourselves in our own way. And so if we really want to move towards this kind of wholeness and freedom a true freedom not like a false freedom that is dependent on the exploitation of others if we want to move towards this towards this vision we have to move from being non-racist right so we're being on the sidelines and trying to um, trying to just not do harm we have to move into being proactive anti-racist co-conspirators and uh, what that looks like is basically um, realizing that in a in a in a racist society and country, simply being neutral, right, or simply being kind of individually good yourself and trying to screen your own behavior is not enough, right? We have to actually get in the middle of this work, and we have to um, become leaders in our own ways. Now, so when we begin to do that we often get really stuck right and this might i hope that you can relate to this because i'm sharing this out of um my very much my own experience this is not like i've gotten this right (laughs) but um i i know that right as white people even when we start to realize how much we have uh, how much stake we have in this and how um, deeply we long for justice we can get paralyzed so we can get paralyzed because on one hand we're hearing from folks of color and activists of color uh, that white silence is violence, right? That if we don't speak up, we're complicit and we're contributing to the violence. On the other hand, we will also hear from other places or even from the same folks that we need to step back right, and allow the leadership of color to, um, to lead the way. So these, this is just a natural tension, and it's a, natural, it's a tension that we have to be comfortable with walking into but we can't let it stop us and we can't let it paralyze us. So we need to, um, we must use our voices and we must take leadership in our own communities. We must take space in all white spaces for the work of liberation, right? And this is how we can begin to use our race privilege for the struggle in order to disinvest ourselves from that privilege and from white supremacy itself. Uh, But we also need to learn how to take leadership not in a power over kind of way but in a power with kind of way and we can do this by leading by following the leadership of folks of color in social movements um so you can yeah
1: are we we done um well um as you know i'm black (laughs) uh yeah and um so that means i talk longer than i was supposed to talk at the beginning which uh, means we have to wrap you up, but I I wanted you to um, stick around. I'm going to move to our next portion about us moving into action, which is kind of what you already talked about as well. Um, So just hold on, stay right there because you can still hear me as I talk. Mm -hmm. Um, And um, I didn't know if there was, if you were gonna say a little bit of something about how people can connect with you further. Mm -hmm. Uh, Is that something you can mention really quickly now?
2: Sure, yeah. So in in Nashville, um, we have a cohort of congregations that is growing, like by the week essentially, of folks who are connected to Surge, uh, who are predominantly white congregations, um, trying to get into some kind of process of intentional reflection and action against racism. So it's really important not just staying in conversation or reflection, but acting at the same time and reflecting along the way and um so if people are interested in getting involved with that as grace point we have a meeting on tuesday november 15th from 7 to eight thirty at edge hill united methodists and then at that meeting we'll be continuing to strategize around that work and kind of making um figuring out what it looks like in your own community so i invite you wholeheartedly to that meeting
1: awesome thank you margaret okay so Like I said, I was gonna come back around to people of color. Margaret specifically spoke to, to the white folks in the room. And a note to people of color, look, we have our own work to do. Some of it is healing work. Some of it is shedding internalized oppression. Some of it is realizing our own privileges and prejudices. And some of it is repenting of how we've participated in white supremacy. And while we have plenty of our own work to do, Um, especially there can be prejudice against other people of color what your work is not is saving every white person on Facebook at work or even at church so please people of color you have to know your limits and you have to do what you can do our white friends who love us be respectful of whatever level of teaching or guidance your black, Latino, Asian, whatever friend is willing to give you and is able to give you. And know that whatever they do give you is coming at a spiritual and emotional cost. So um, we're going to ask you to put that faith into action today. Can I have my slides? Um, Even as you're still in deep reflection. It's easy to talk about racism and even develop this faithful spiritual response. Um, It's easy to get caught in those kind of spiritualized terms Um, and we can get caught in in, um, acts of service like sending cards to people in prison at Christmas time or even raising awareness by doing a book club or something. But if we truly wanna participate, as King said, in bending the arc of the universe towards justice, we must participate in both systems and framework change. its kind of some of the things that um, Margaret was talking about. So these system and framework changes are what leads to that deep organizational, societal, and cultural change over time. And one of the most striking places that we see the impact of white supremacy and racism in the lives of marginalized people is the criminal justice system. We're Still working on our slides? Oh, okay. So let's actually want you to read this with me. African-Americans, say it, African-Americans Am- Americans are incarcerated, incarcerated at, at six, six times, times the rate, the rate of, of whites. So let that sink in. Something is really wrong here. Very quickly your brain tries to figure that out, right? Is it poverty? Is it lack of education? Are black people just more violent? or criminal? I mean, we hear, right, they're just killing each other. We hear about black-on-black crime. But as Christians, if we really believe that every person is made in the image of God, it cannot be a flaw within black people that leads to this. There is something else happening. Next slide, please. Now, how many of you saw Selma? Raise right your hand. Okay, some of you need to see Selma. Um, how many of you have Netflix? Yay, okay, more than saw Selma. Now, the director of Selma, Ava DuVernay, has now just come out with a documentary. It's called The Thirteenth. It's about the 13th Amendment. This is the 13th Amendment. Either sla- that that we are abolishing slavery, except as a punishment for crime. So we didn't abolish slavery. Understand that, as, that very early on, peop- black men especially were rounded up and made to work on white people's farms. Black people still today work on corporate farms and in all kinds of other capacity, maybe making a piece of clothing that you have on your body today for pennies a day which, yes, technically is pay, but you could argue that slaves were fed. Apparently, some people argue that the slaves at the White House were well-fed, so it doesn't matter, (coughs) but um, I want you to go home and do your homework, and that's to watch that documentary. If you've already watched it, watch it again. Because it relates to what I'm about to ask you to do right now, and it'll help you understand the link between racialized chattel slavery, as it was practiced in the United States, in our current racialized mass incarceration policies. Next slide. This is Cyrus Wilson and his wife um, and their family. Um, he, his sisters and nieces and cousins and all come to visit him. Cyrus is your neighbor. Cyrus is a lifelong Nashvillean who was falsely accused of murder at 18 years old. When he, and he's been locked up for life. Despite witnesses that later confess to both being pressured by authorities and lying and physical evidence confirming his, evidence, his innocence, Cyrus sits in jail, having lost 24 years of his life to a system that considers poor people, people of color, and those without connections and resources to be disposable and to be wor- worthy of locked away for life. So this is where the action in the midst of the discomfort comes in. Our conditioning in a white supremacist society insists on upholding law and order and systems we can trust. What if he's guilty? I need to go research first. I need to make sure that this black man isn't a criminal. What if Mickey is biased because she's black too? Cyrus is your brother. He has been in prison for 24 years. The first two, he was caged without a trial. Jesus came to set the captives free, and I happen to think that Jesus actually meant actual captives in actual jails and prisons, not just a spiritual prison. Yes. So what I'm asking you is if you are ready to work with Jesus on that mission. Next slide. So I'm asking you to take out your phone right now, because most of you in this room have a smartphone, and actually tweet and Facebook about Cyrus' case. Now, you can go home and you can look up all the stuff. But right now, I know you can get out your phone. And you can tweet the Davidson County DA. What we're asking for is there to, for them to reopen the case. Because there is the evidence is there that would clear his name. Now, it's a much longer story. Um, there, is, there is something called the Alfred plea, when you can, where you can walk away, essentially, but you are still a convicted felon. Cyrus has decided that he would rather stay in jail than get out and still be considered a convicted felon because that is what happens to most people. Understand most people plea and and agree to something they did not do and then even to get released. Most people get released as a felon, not as an innocent person. So Cyrus has said, I will not do that if that means I have to stay forever. So we're asking the Davidson County DA, who is the only person other than the governor who can pardon him, just straight out pardon him, the Davidson County DA is the only person that can reopen his case to just even get it looked at. So tweet at Davidson Co DA, and there it is what you can um, tweet. And then on Facebook, you can also tag them in your Facebook post and say, I believe Cyrus Wilson is an innocent man, reopen his case, 24 years is too long. Hashtag free Cyrus Wilson. There is also the address, you can take a picture of it. I invite your meal groups, your book clubs, your mom's group, your men's group, any group you got. Um, There's even a school, I think it's University School in Nashville is having a fifth grade class write letters on Cyrus's behalf. You can write letters um, to Glenn Funk and ask him to reopen this case. Um, I think we have one more. Also, where your treasure is, your heart also is also. So please, um, when I asked Casey Wilson, who's Cyrus's wife, where to give money, she said the No Exceptions Prison Collective that works with people like Cyrus, works with my friend Rahim, who was in jail for 24 years, um, and uh, was also convicted as a very young man um, and who's now out and is doing this kind of work. He works with No Exceptions as well. Um, And so you can go to noexceptions.net and and give to the work. You can also volunteer That's that Cyrus' website that gives all the details of his case. And you have skills, you have power, you have connections and resources. So what can you give? Can you make a website? Can you call somebody that you know? Um, Can you fundraise? Can you give to prisoner expenses, right? Prisoners have to pay to call their families. Prisoners have to pay to get something like gum out of the commissary, right? Like, they have nothing in prison. Um, And I know you guys know this because of Melissa's work, right? Yes, it is great to go in and brighten someone's day, but this is, we want less people in prison. We want prison abolition. I want prison abolition. I think that we can do it. So I'm asking how you can use your power, whether it's writing, social media, podcasts, posting, um, whether it's you post once a week for a year about Cyrus Wilson and get that hashtag out there. Um, Think of ways that you can both individually and collectively work um, with groups that you're a part of. So as as we close out, I think we have one more slide. I want to leave you with this because there are no easy answers. This is kind of, you know how, um, especially those of you who are uh, kind of post-evangelical, right? Like, you have your life verse. This is my life verse. Um, It actually comes from the Talmud. And some of it may be familiar. Do not be daunted by the enormity of the world's grief. Do justly now. Love mercy now. Walk humbly now now. You are not obligated to complete the work, but neither are you free to abandon it. Thank you.
3: So, remain standing and we'll be dismissed. I just want to say that this is a time for me and for us to speak less and listen more. Listening is very hard for us, all of us. But this is something that our mouths need to be pursed, and our ears need to be open, and we need to listen, listen, listen thank you for speaking today and sharing your heart and pulling no punches thank you all for listening today this is an important important subject it's more than a subject we are a people built on a tradition and within that tradition there is much complexity on this issue the more we're able to read the Bible faithfully and wholly the better we will be There is a reason that my two fellow pastors are women Mm. and I'm sitting in the congregation more. It's not because I don't like teaching and it's not because I'm not working through the week. It's because the church needs to elevate women. The church needs to elevate women in leadership. The only way to do that is for men to de-elevate themselves and back up. And that is true of heterosexual people, white people, I am a triple majority this is a time for listening can you say amen? "Amen"? we listen today thank you again one more time for Mickey <laughs> and in prayer we do what we started and we take a deep breath right now. And we relax our shoulders and we still our hearts and open our souls. Search us, O oh God, and see if there be any wicked thing hidden in our blind spots. and help us to love our neighbor as we have loved ourselves help us to know our part and our way forward we trust that we are finding the current and the trade winds of spirit take us As we lift our oars and allow your wind to lead us, take us now. We pray all of this in the name of that ragtag rabbi. Name Jesus. And God's people said, Amen. amen. God bless you. Go in God's peace be good to one another.